Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is a special edition of Talking Politics. I'm delighted to say we're joined by the New Statesman podcast. We've got Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush here. They've come all the way to Cambridge. We're very grateful. We're going to do this in two parts. We're going to do one conversation, but we're going to cut it in two. So we're going to be chatting to them. And then if you want to hear the second half, you're going to have to switch channels to the New Statesman podcast. And then you can hear the second part of what we talked about. And then we're going to talk about 2016, how we've experienced it, what it's been like for us, but also what we think it means. And we're going to do a certain amount of looking ahead, what we think might happen next year and beyond. I thought we could start, given this is, among other things, a kind of interaction between a podcast made by academics and a podcast made by journalists to talk about how 2016 has been for you as journalists in the age of post-truth and fake news, but also whether your experiences have been like ours, and okay, I'm speaking for myself here, there's never been a time where people have been more interested in what we do. And maybe particularly as academics, you get used to feeling that you're slightly at one remove and okay, students pretend to be interested, but on the whole, people are just being polite. And this year, the most obvious symptom of it is that we have events and we're usually grateful if anyone shows up and for the last six months where you'd expect 30 people you get 180 particularly around Brexit which is both exciting but also then I often felt the audiences were a bit frustrated because we weren't quite giving them what they wanted and I don't know I don't think they wanted facts but they kind of wanted answers and but and did then, you feel like that the, the moment you woke up after Brexit because I actually stayed up until it was obvious that leave had won and then I woke up the next morning and I thought do you know what I just have no idea what happens next it was like standing on the edge of a really vast chasm right it, I just felt everything had been thrown up into the air it was actually kind of weirdly kind of almost the sense of kind of vertigo right you just thought well there is no roadmap for this no one has ever done this before but on the other hand your job is almost immediately and you're under more pressure than we are because your deadlines are tighter yeah. than ours to tell people what happens next right did yeah. you did you feel that sense of there's this chasm but also what are we meant to do because I I didn't go to sleep and then so you were I, just hallucinating by about seven o'clock in the I, morning. I planned to but then but then Jason emailed us all asking us to come into the office so I came into the office and embarrassingly I started crying on the bus when if someone had said to me at the start of 2016 when David Cameron resigns, you'll cry. I would have thought, it feels unlikely. And I thought we would leave, but I hadn't quite absorbed the... And so I just, that whole kind of immediate phase afterwards, I was in this weird dream state. Cameron where... resigning definitely made it feel more like, because it was just like, and now you had your prime minister going, well, no so, idea what's happening next. So we asked people on this podcast how Brexit night was for them and how Trump... You're the first Brexit crier that we've had. We've had some Trump criers. So what was it? What was it about Cameron resigning that... I I think because I spent the first half of this year in this state of intense anxiety about the European referendum. And I just uh, had felt for a long time that if we had a vote on it, we would, we, would, uh, we would be lost. And so when Sunderland came in, I thought, Jar, I can't ever be worried about us leaving the European Union again. <laughs> right, that, this can't... I can't have to go through this horrible process a second time. And... Then when when Cameron resigned, I realised it wasn't a relief that I didn't have to worry about us leaving the European Union again because we were, in fact, leaving the European Union. It became real again. Whereas with Trump, and this is where I guess I become a sort of stereotypical European lefty, I didn't expect it to happen, but I I guess I've kind of always thought that America could do crazy, potentially world-ending 
things in their elections, right? I, I wouldn't didn't expect them to do this potentially world-ending crazy thing in their elections, but it didn't upset my sense of self in the way that even though I thought Brexit would happen, and so you'd think I'd have been less emotion, more emotionally yeah. prepared. So was it, it a, a Brexit? We did it. Trump, they did it. Yeah. But also, I think it, it, I wrote for a couple of American magazines and I actually got a piece um, essentially thrown out, about, which was a piece about fake news because they just said they actually want to clear everything in the magazine and, and respond to Trump winning. And I, I wrote a piece from the New York Times as well for their live, which was which they headlined something like Welcome to Brexit Land or like the view from Brexit Land. I don't think anybody in Britain felt as shocked from kind of British political class, whatever you want to call it, felt as shocked about Trump happening after Brexit. Whereas I think that a lot of people went through a kind of turbocharged version of what many establishment people felt about Brexit if they were American because they, they, to them it was this absolute sledgehammer I mean I think particularly after the kind of pussygate stuff happened people just went well that's it's, it's obviously over now like you know he will just never get elected now whereas I just don't feel there was that kind of sense of shock having happened once already I kind of thought well maybe this is the year when you know populism triumphs over kind of cold hard economics or the political establishment I think they were a bit different though because I think it was just a profound difference between having a referendum when you're essentially asking people to make a decision, in some sense making the most important decision that they're ever going to make in their lives, and then asking them to vote for a representative, which is what they're doing in a presidential election. I mean, I was, I'm almost certain, in fact I am certain, that Nigel Farage could never have won a election in this country, even if he was leader of the Conservative Party, which he would never have been. But a referendum was for reasons to do, I think, with the history of Britain's relationship with the European Union in some ways. As Stephen said, an inevitability in some sense in the end. It was an inevitability in 2016, but it was an inevitability, I think. At some point it, it was going to happen. Some point it, at some point it was going to happen. Whereas there was not a sense that at some point Donald Trump is going to be President of the United States. But you, so Stephen, you think that with the American election, you had that feeling something like this was always going to happen. Whereas, so you have the opposite view of Helen, our Helen, I'm going to call her, that the American thing was kind of, this thing was coming, whereas Brexit, though you feared it. It's not even so much nice, I thought this thing was coming. I guess it's an, because I do have this slightly snobbish European view on American politics. Oh, of course, you know, all of the Republican candidates this time around didn't believe that man-made climate change was happening. At some point, the pendulum would swing back to a type of politics I found quite scary. I think it's a, a different type of election. I agree with, with your Helen, as it were, that <laughs> Nigel Farage couldn't have won an election here. Well, we've got quite a lot of evidence to yeah. suggest that he stood seven times for Westminster and, <laughs> yeah. and, and um, couldn't do it. So Stephen yeah. and I have, have alternate Cassandra roles this year. So he was very much the guy in the office who was, Brexit's going to happen, Brexit's going to happen, everyone's in denial. I was the person in the office going, let's think about what our leader's going to be if Trump wins. And everyone else was like, <laughs> look at the polls though, Hillary's going to win. And my reason for thinking that was that I thought that there was going to be a white backlash in America against having a black president, against Black Lives Matter, against the idea that Hillary was running this identity politics campaign campaign which was pushed even by people on the left was this idea that basically Hillary Clinton was only running for kind of pansexuals and she wasn't ever saying anything about the working class which was a complete distortion of the platform that she ran on you know it had some very kind of crunchy working class politics as well but that was very much how it was being being framed I think and so that's why I you know I looked at the polls and said well you know I'll accept that but I was not at all surprised by Trump. So to, to go back to Brexit Stephen if you were the one who in a sense saw it coming but your colleagues at the New Statesman didn't so how do they then react so they've got a 
a view of the world and then it's upended. I mean, this is the same. I mean, we're in Cambridge. Cambridge was a Romaine bubble par excellence. It was, mm-hmm. and we, you know, Helen and I worked with a lot of people who really, really didn't see it coming and did feel their whole worldview was upended. And then some of them study this for a living, whether they're economists or historians or political scientists. And it's a real struggle, actually, for a lot of people, and I would include myself in this, to kind of know what to do next. So was it the same? Was there a sense in the office that you had to have a real hard think about what your job is, what you, what business you're in? Or do you just move straight on? It's another big news story and we just start covering it. I think in a way I feel like the kind of Brexit, oh God, what does this mean in terms of our jobs, didn't really come until a week later. Because you're moving so fast in journalism, as you say, you were just firefighting for the first week and there were many, many fires. I remember I was sitting on College Green doing live TV on the Sunday politics and they'd kind of troop us all off from this sort of weird kind of great big stage that had been built on the, the grass outside Parliament and they troop on somebody from to give an, an interview and you'd look, go back to your phone and be like, who else has resigned now? And actually there was a kind of point from someone from the Shadow Cabinet hadn't resigned for about 40 minutes and we kind of, oh, oh that's it, right? <laughs> Time maybe for reflection now. Yeah, maybe it's all over. But it was this, it was an extraordinary period to come I think Stephen's absolutely right is that it was a bit like sort of you know stuff coming towards you constantly and it it took several weeks for us to kind of settle down and go what fundamentally did assumptions we made that were wrong but I think one of the things that's happened though is 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 people have had their worldview appended because they've thought that actually history has been on the side of their worldview and that what this year has shown is that history doesn't work like that and so lots of things that people have been very upset and distressed about in the past so Labour voters who are distressed about the 2015 general election I think have had to realise well actually that wasn't particularly disturbing of their worldview. this is just of a, a completely different kind of existential shock because they could accommodate the fact that the Conservatives in this country win elections from time to time but actually to think that the liberal premises in which they've constructed their worldview are not guaranteed by time, that's a whole other, that's almost like a spiritual shock in some sense. One of the most useful things that someone said on Twitter after it was, you know that sense you're feeling now as a kind of liberal Remainer that I'm not being listened to, like my side's lost. That's what UKIP voters have been feeling to their very core for years now. You know, like no one's interested in what I think. No, I'm the marginalised one. I'm, you know, I'm the one that's being being told that you're on the wrong side of history. And that is exactly the core of that kind of left behind feeling that actually, you know what, there are hollows words that I can't say anymore. You know, my type of person is not seen as being the future. They're seen as being the past. And I think that was a really useful corrective. And then exactly as Helen says, there was this crisis, particularly in the Labour Party for us, obviously, that's a a home game, as it were. Um, I feel it was probably actually only in about August that I started to think, but wait a second, what does being a political journalist mean now in Britain? Because Brexit is our national project, right? We will be Brexiting for decades, right? Everyone in the NS office who, who is over 35 probably will retire assuming that the pension aid doesn't do anything particularly strange which is a slightly big assumption but i'm just going to roll with it will be covering brexit for their entire careers we we might not think about it in that way we might go oh isn't it strange that we had pension promises from an, an era when the pound had the same value as the dollar but we we will still be going through it and kind of the sudden moment of going, oh, wait, wait, so am I the Brexit correspondent now? Or, you know, kind of, do I do I just not do politics and isn't Brexit? And, and how does this fit in with, with all of the kind of other sort of universe of things that I've been covering before? There was also a pretty unprecedented moment during the summer when you were having Labour and Tories having a leadership contest at the same time, which added to my sense of 
oh my god no one's in charge if you remember that time when mark carney kind of came out and said guys you know it's okay i've got some plans and it, and there was this sort of almost palpable sense of relief that oh my god there's still a grown-up around somebody somebody still kind of is, is is paying attention some bit of the old order is still kind of survived to kind of guide us on and i think that was a big part of why theresa may ended up becoming tory leader because actually having done this incredibly rebellious kind of kicking the stool away thing people kind of said okay well you know thank you we've we've taken our big risk but let's not go crazy now like let's have somebody who we think is probably slightly boring but sane to guide us through this i think people wanted a limited amount of rebellion so there are two motifs of this year for people like us who don't do politics but in one way or another write about it or study it or comment on it where we're on the receiving end one is fake news and i don't know what that's done for morale among journalists and then the other is the british public are tired of experts and a lot of people around here took that very personally slightly too personally some of them i think they thought it was about them i don't think the british public were thinking of them in particular What's the fake news story done to how journalists feel about public perceptions of what you do? I mean, is it has it been bad for morale? Journalist morale was already pretty low. I mean, we're in a declining industry that is supported by print advertising that is falling off a cliff and digital ad rates that are, you know, pennies. And you can't, you know, the margins, the profit margins that you got on a newspaper in the 1970s are just not going to be replicable in the digital world. The way people talk about fake news, I think, has got into this sort of baggy state where just kind of bad journalism is sucked into it. But the original fake news phenomenon, which was the one that was identified by um, John Herman, really brilliant piece in The New York Times about the accidental hyper-partisan political machine. What it meant was basically Facebook tries to keep you inside Facebook. So and it absolutely prioritizes people sharing news and i know there'll be people listening to this who'll think well what happened you know what what does it matter what happens on facebook but i think 44 percent of americans got their news off facebook um between them facebook and google have 66 percent of the online advertising market you know these are just absolutely dominant people in the in the online space they're taking them the money that would previously probably have gone to newspapers and what's happening to that money well if you put a, a, a post, you know, whether it's the New Statesman or the New York Times, or it's a site run by a guy in his bedroom, or as John Herman discovered, sometimes there's someone running 30 sites and they're getting a couple in Manila to, to churn out, sort of aggregate stuff and put it on there. What happens is it costs less to do that than you can make in Facebook advertising revenue. So there were people pursuing essentially a kind of form of arbitrage of just turning content into Facebook advertising revenue with no reference at all to any kind of idea of journalistic standards or even caring when it was true. And what those people discovered is that Bernie Sanders' pages kind of got people going, particularly when they were having Hillary Clinton as being a kind of sellout. But Donald Trump pages really got people going. And I think subsequently BuzzFeed found a 100 pro-Trump pages that were being run out of one town in Macedonia. Channel 4 News then went over them, met some of the people involved who were sort of teenagers, who just spotted an opportunity to make money. And that's one of the things that the internet's had this incredible flattening effect when you look at a paper like the new statesman or the new york times or you uh, look at something in print you know there's a big difference between that and in the typography the layout of something like you know weekly world news or the national inquiry you know there is a kind of visual grammar that we're used to well actually everything going through facebook and to a lesser extent through google strips all that away everything looks the same there's this very clean white space aesthetic that everything ends up going and actually what it does it removes a lot of the contextual clues that people have used to decide whether or not something is a reliable news source so, so do, is your job now part of your job fighting back against that i mean you can cover it but are you 
Are you on the other side of that now? Is but that No one knows how to fight it. This is the big thing that's been frustrating with being a journalist this year is there's been so many times where you feel like you've swung a punch and it's and it's connected with with nothing. You know, the scandals about Donald Trump, we confidently went through you know, seven things that you would have assumed would have felled an American presidential candidate might, I don't know how you feel about this, Steve, might even have felled a, you know, a Mitt Romney, a generic Republican, boasting about sexual assault. I mean, we, we were told for a long time that, you know, uh, Republican evangelical voters wouldn't deal with anybody who'd been married several times. Well, I guess Newt Gingrich put that to bed. But, you know, <laughs> Trump is just not representative of what we were told the Republican Party wanted. And you th- you'd have think that any one of these scandals would have brought him down. But he like Nigel Farage, went sort of through the gaff zone and out the other side. And that's, I think, that's where we are now. It's quite a scary place to be, actually, where because people say, you would say that, wouldn't you? Nothing that you say ever connects. People have been inoculated against listening to you. I also think there's there's a problem, and I don't know what the solution is, but there's a problem in our industry that we have not worked out a way to deal with politicians saying things which are just flatly untrue. So this row about hope, not hate, and Nigel Farage... Hope Not Hate is not an extremist organisation, right? It's just not true. Most not of a the, violent one, which yeah, is what mo- he's specifically... Yeah. I mean, they, have, they have said they'll sue, yeah. right? I mean, that is one yeah, way you are, can... They are, they are. It's hard to but, sue as an organisation, so I don't yeah, know how well they'll but, get with that. But most of the headlines, even on papers which are perhaps instinctively unsympathetic towards Nigel Farage, make it look as if there might be some weight to this accusation. And I think, although fake news obviously was a problem in the US election, and because the, you know, the... 100,000 votes across three states is all would have flipped it. Basically, anything which lost Clinton votes becomes decisive. So it's this weird election where all of the opinions about what went wrong can be true. But I think, as with Brexit, and while I'm mostly leery of some of the commonalities between the two, the media did not do an adequate job of covering, exposing the things that Trump said were flatly untrue and conveying the scale of his unpreparedness for for office obviously with the referendum for me the famous moment was Angela Merkel going look there is not a better deal to be had by leaving which got considerably less cover than you know kind of fairly trivial non-entities from the Conservative Party coming out one way or the other in in the referendum so I think fake news was a problem but I do also think the kind of cult of balance and the kind of horse race journalism of real news was perhaps a bigger or at least as Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. Larger problem? Do you not have the sense that Helen just described that you land a punch and then it's just you're swinging into thin air what would you have had to have done to make the punch land because I mean I certainly as a consumer of the news there is that feeling that you're reading these things that expose candidates and so on and you just have that feeling that they also are somehow floating around in the air you don't know what they're hooking onto except that you're reading it there's there's that there is that sort of vertiginous feeling to some of this. I think that, and that is a result of a, of a very deliberate project, at least in the US, by the US right to create an alternative media, right? So there has been over 20 years through Fox News, through you know things like Rush Limbaugh's radio channel, now through Breitbart, about having an in-house kind of news that presents your view of reality. I don't think we're quite there in Britain yet. And I think one of the things that holds us back actually from that is the BBC, which for all that it's incredibly fought over, still has an incredible amount of authority people do trust the BBC to report what's true even if they might also slightly agree that it's a kind of nest of metropolitan liberals we have at least kind of got a kind of common ground of facts that most people can agree on I think that's something that we need to very much police and defend if we're not to go down the route that America's gone down I was going to say I think what's thing that's really different with the United States here is is there just is a, a long-standing conservative distrust in America of what it sees of as the liberal media and I'm not sure that we, even the people who are in the Conservative Party being very critical of the BBC, that's just not spreading the culture in the same way in which it is in the United States. And so when the attacks on Trump were being made by the liberal media, as it was seen, the New York Times was seen to discard its balance in terms of the way that it presented Trump, someone on the liberal side could say, well, actually, they should have been a lot more condemning of the things that Trump had to say. But from the point of view, if you bought into the old idea that the New York Times is the liberal medium doesn't do fair deal for conservative candidates not that I think that Trump was a conservative candidate in any meaningful sense we'll um, of that, that is, is, is that why listen to what the New York Times has got to say because that's just the New York Times saying what it always says in fact from their point of view it looked like from their point of view it looked like the um, liberal media doubled down on its strategy in this US election and in that sense I think it, it actually contributed to some of Hillary Clinton's problems but you must have had that, presumably, that sense that you're in Cambridge University. Well, obviously, that's what you would say. And that, that again, that's what I mean, that inoculation against there are being any facts, there are only politicised facts, and, and you are inherently untrustworthy. It doesn't matter what you say. But it was, because I was thinking about this, that sense I conveyed earlier, that we have these events, say, around Brexit, very well attended, people from the town coming to events in the university, which wouldn't normally happen. And what were, what were they after... And I don't think they were after the facts. I think that you know, the idea that people wanted more information. 
And they weren't after opinions either. They wanted something to orient themselves around that fitted in with their worldview, but that took them beyond the things. And it's really hard to know how to... And some of these debates that we had were quite balanced, and that would frustrate them. And some of the debates we had were quite one-sided, and that would frustrate them. It was really hard to know what the thing was that would connect. But the hunger was there. I mean, that's... You know, to go back to where I started, has it been a good year or a bad year for journalists or academics? The hunger is there, isn't it? I mean, don't you feel from your readers... And you have more readers, don't you? Yeah, you? the circulation so, of the print title has gone up and actually readership of the um, the website post-Brexit was astonishing. I mean, 27 million page views. And I think that's probably replicated through... Um, so, so what, if, what is ever. it you think that they are hungry for, your new readers? Someone who will tell them what's going to happen, I think. You think prediction? Because we were really bad at that, all of us. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so why are they looking to us for I prediction? Think, well, I think there are, there are a couple of, of things. I think, one, people... There was this sense of, oh, this has happened... Everything from who's our prime minister to what happens to my pet passports. I'm not an animal owner, so I'm not entirely clear what the issue with pet passports are, but but I, I'm assured there are some. But you're there to help people yeah. if they have those fears? But I think there was also an element with us that being a new statesman reader is a tribal marker. Mm. Um, and in some ways, I think what our readers want from us is is... Exactly as you said earlier, then there are people who thought that history was just inevitably on their side, and the arc of history bent towards justice. It turns out actually the arc of history just bends whatever way, and it's currently being pushed the strongest. And people wanted something which they went, look, here are my values. They feel under threat. This is something which broadly agrees with and speaks to my concerns uh, about this, which is why, of course, yeah, the, the piece which still, no matter how poorly written that individual one may or may not be then we'll always do a guaranteed sort of hit in terms of readership is going here's why the referendum could be overturned i think as well it isn't necessarily that they're searching for something in particular even something that they could have in their subconscious regardless beyond what they could um, articulate it is this strange phenomenon that's happened in 2016 where politics has just taken up too much of our lives People are addicted to politics, or lots of people are addicted to politics. You don't have to have a sort of coherent idea about what you're trying to understand. You have got politics in your head an awful lot of the time, and you have got, through the internet, the instant availability of tons of different kinds of things, whether it's opinions, whether it's attempts to explain, whether it's um, predictions. So you latch onto it because your mind is full of it. And you'll get something new every 10 or 15 minutes. I also think there's a sense, and I think you mentioned this in your recent LRB piece um, about people feeling just that they're they're kind of bored that politics has become too narrow and actually people have forgotten what happens when politics goes really badly wrong right and there is a certain complacency and feeling that the you know the paints have been too watercolour and actually people kind of just slightly take that for granted they don't feel that there are big risks associated with politics anymore I think that's definitely something you see in America you know they interviewed Trump voters about Obamacare after the thing and very few of them said they thought he would repeal Obamacare, right? Which has been an you know something that the Republicans have tried to do dozens and dozens of times while Obama's been in office. They will certainly try again, but I I just don't think people's calibration of risk was very high. And actually, certainly that applies with the EU referendum as well. I don't think people felt it was a big risk to go outside. Their kind of spectrum of the bad thing that can happen was slightly slower economic growth to sunlit uplands and getting a lot of sovereignty back it didn't encompass the very very extremes about they didn't think you know land war in eastern europe right they just people just did not think that was a thing that was going to happen yeah and that was what i was trying to say in the article actually i think a vote for brexit was a sign that people had basic confidence in the institutions that govern them because if they didn't they wouldn't have voted for brexit okay so to two other kinds of questions one looking forward one looking back 
So looking forward, and I'm going to start with our Helen on this one, which is you know, people speculating about what might happen in 2017 and beyond. And as Helen says, we're addicted to politics and we're addicted to particularly sort of short-term news stories about politics, who's up, who's down, who's in Trump's cabinet, da-da-da. And there's that feeling that thinking about 2017 is thinking about what people are going to do in the new offices to which they have, at which they have arrived. But at some point, all of these people in these offices are going to collide with economic reality. And the economic story, which goes way back before Trump and before Brexit and will go way beyond, is rumbling away. And Helen, our Helen's talked about this a lot on our podcast. So Helen, what in 2017 and beyond, what are the ways in which you think economics might trump politics? That is, make it matter less who's in these offices than the hard reality that they face? Well, I think the obvious answer to that is is that what the Fed, the Federal Reserve Board, is doing and did last week in terms of raising interest rates and the consequences that has had for the dollar and indeed because of the consequences for the dollar for pretty much every other currency as well. And the, and the place where that's playing out most significantly at the moment is in emerging markets and China. I think that the events in the Eurozone countries over the next six months or nine months if we go into the German election, but I think that the German election is not in itself going to destabilise the Eurozone, is the point in which the economic questions and the political questions are going to come back together because you know the Euro is, is going to start 2017 sliding against the dollar. It's going to start with a growing Italian banking crisis. The Deutsche Bank situation seems a bit better than it was even a month ago. But into this have got to come the Dutch election, first of all, and then the French election. Now, the Dutch election, I think, is going to be pretty important because the interesting thing about the Dutch, where these economic questions are concerned, is is that they no longer behave, or the Dutch economy no longer behaves like a core part of the Eurozone, which it did prior to the Eurozone crisis. The Dutch economy used to be the one that was most tightly connected to Germany, and now it isn't. There's obviously a significant populist party in the Netherlands, it's got issues in terms of multiculturalism in the Netherlands as well to interact with the economic questions and a, a situation in which you've got to have a series of elections in Eurozone countries against the backdrop in which the dollar's strong and the euro is weak, even just in straight exchange rate management terms, before you get into the things that are particular triggers for crisis in the Eurozone in terms of the political and economic dynamics between its member states and that starts I think with the Italian and banking crisis that's a pretty lethal combination of economics and politics and I think for that reason you can expect actually more political turbulence because in some sense Brexit and Trump have happened in countries where the economic risks around it are less not that they're not profound they are because everything in the world is profoundly risky in terms of economics at the moment but because they don't involve the eurozone and they don't involve the debt consequences of a monetary union that might fall apart. So then my question to Helen and Stephen, assuming at some point, maybe not in the next 12 months, but as Helen said, it could be the next 12 months or beyond, there is going to be another economic crisis of some kind. And at some point, there's also going to be another recession. And we've had Brexit and Trump, which are sort of voters taking us to places we haven't been before. When another economic crisis collides with this new politics... I have no idea the answer to this question. What happens? <laughs> right. do, do the voters run back to the middle? You know, on, on what I said earlier, that actually they had a sort of basic confidence in these institutions. And if they're really, if they're really put to the test on that, they're going to go back to the grown-ups. Or are we at the beginning of a process where there's just going to be this doubling down on looking for 
new kinds of politics because the, you know, in a way this story hasn't started yet what we haven't had yet is a Trump presidency colliding with a recession or you know, Brexit Britain encountering a eurozone that's falling apart but there has to be a pretty good chance that those things are coming <laughs> it's a cheery end to the year do you no we're going to do the cheery bit after this <laughs> I find it easier to work out what I think will happen in the, U- the US and then obviously Trump starts with record unfavorables he didn't win the popular vote this time perversely the one good thing for the democrats to do all this is is winning back control of of the house which looked impossible before 2016 if there is a recession suddenly that becomes you know governorships start opening out their ability to rebuild their their base gets stronger the flip side of that of course is what's happening in north carolina right now where the republicans have lost control of the state house and they are using their lame duck session to go, well, actually, we've just decided and we think it is all appropriate to limit the, the power of our, our democratically elected successor. So the interesting question for me about Trump is whether or not American democracy will survive in its current form. We know there is an undemocratic streak uh, in the modern Republican Party, and we know that there is a, a deeply hostile strain within Trump himself towards criticism and opposition. But it feels to me that the the pressure gauge in, in US politics is easier to see where it is, even though forces might interfere in its operation. The difficulty with Brexit is I think the British people are broadly united, apart from smug sentiments, people like us, in that they agreed on two things. They wanted immigration to go down and they didn't want to pay for it. And and what divided Remain from Leave was if you thought you'd have to pay for reducing immigration. But broadly there is a there is not a majority in this country for becoming poorer to have less immigrants here. However, that is almost certainly what will happen. The question is, will it be like the political success of austerity where the government can go, something bad's happening to you, but it's because something good will happen later? Or will it be that people will become very angry? They'll go, look, I was told that I could reduce immigration at no cost to myself, or in some cases, I voted not to get poorer, and I am in fact poorer. Then the question is, who do they blame? Do they blame the government? Do they blame the establishment, which obviously in London and the North is the Labour Party? Or do they blame immigrants or other social and, and cultural minorities? But the political lever of dissent in the in the UK is much harder to work out what it is. So I think mm. I'm more worried about the structures of American politics going down a grim path. I'm, Whereas I think in the UK, I think there's more of a possibility for the democratic actions as opposed to how they're interpreted by institutions to go down a grim path. And, and Helen, as you said, if Theresa May is the grown-up, when they're looking for someone to blame, you know, one way this goes is that the grown-ups say, well, look, it's not looking good, you need the grown-ups. The other way is that people say, you pretended you were the grown-ups. Yeah, I think austerity is a really interesting case because Philip Hammond, sort of day one of being Chancellor, he loosened the, his tar- you know, the targets that he had to achieve to give himself some wiggle room. But let's not be under any illusions. There is still a lot of cutting of the state that is built into those economic projections. And you're in a state now where, you know, there have been strikes over Christmas. I think people would argue that the NHS is certainly just, feels like a bottomless pit. You need to, it constantly needs more money thrown into it. And our public services have been cut pretty hard. Things like adult social care have been absolutely cut to the bone. And I think you're beginning to see the first kind of whispers of dissent about that. I mean, it's been remarkable really how little dissent there's been about cuts, particularly to local authorities. So if you combine that with a a sort of sense that we thought austerity was done, 
add another recession onto that that then necessitates further cuts, I think that is a recipe for an incredibly unhappy populace. But Labour are not the obvious beneficiaries of that at at all at the moment. I think that's what I think the, the oppositional energy, where that ends up in British politics, is a really interesting question for next year. And as for looking at America, I think my resolve for that is to almost entirely filter out what Donald Trump is saying and decide that I just think he will end up in that space of like, I don't know, Duterte in the Philippines or a kind of one of those African oh dictators that just, you know, that says fist shaky things that are kind of understood right. to be but doesn't bolstering. I hope that's where it will <laughs> don't end up. Don't filter that bit out. But no, but, but, but in the sense of that it is just seen as a kind of almost delightfully adding to the gaiety of the nation that actually, you know, that, you know, in the same way that voters did, right? He said terrible, terrible things during the campaign and people just said, well, obviously he doesn't mean them literally. I wonder if that will happen in international affairs as well. So I think it's probably more interesting to look at what he does that will upset China, for example, than mad 3am tweets, which I'm sure, you know, people will find very offensive, but ultimately will be considered to be kind of in the game. So let's finish on an upbeat note. So we've been asking on our podcast people to think of something good about 2016 to counter some of the doom and gloom. Do you want to have a go at that? Either of you? Something, some good news to end on. Not fake news, but good news. Or fake good news. Or good fake news. (laughs) This is both good news and I think true news, which is... I think I think the Lib Dems were unfairly punished at the 2015 election. I think it's very strange. I can see if you hate the idea of them going to coalition with the Tories, it is a strange response to then vote for the Tories. So in those Lib Tory seats, I think that they are, as we saw in Richmond Park, as we saw in the big vote share gain they made in Whitney, they're kind of coming back a little bit. And for me, that also reflects a bigger realignment that I think is happening in politics, whether or not it will be strong enough to break through our current you know, two-party system. Uh, in terms of who gets to be government is is an open question about this sort of realignment about politics around kind of open versus closed or you know whatever words you want to kind of give that and that comes out in lots of different ways I think that there is currently the parties as they currently stand don't entirely map onto what people's sense of themselves are and I think that actually the Lib Dems doing better will give more people in the country a sense that there are part there is a party that represents them Stephen the good news my good news and it's a little bit uh, mean, but it was watching uh, Zach Goldsmith lose not just once but twice. The first time, obviously, was was wonderful because uh, I've always lived in London and I'm one of those awful London snobs who regards it as the epitome of civilization. And it was quite nice to see a campaign which just felt like a it felt like what it was a, a very posh conservative stereotypical idea of how you get swing voters in in Dagenham who usually vote for the Labour Party to vote vote for you against an Asian candidate and and it was good to see that repudiated and then the second time after you know a back end of the year in which the nativist right has had it pretty much all its own way to watch him walk into a by-election where they had successfully completely de-liberal democratified Richmond right they'd they'd beaten them at council level they'd beaten them to be to be defeated and also that they didn't see it coming until until basically hours before the vote. It was just wonderful. Uh, and I think it's also, yeah, as Helen says, in terms of whatever left-wing politics might look like in the 21st century, it is clear, unless there is some remarkable Labour revival in Scotland, that the path to getting the, the right out in Britain is going to involve a Liberal revival in places like Cornwall and Devon. And anything which shows that there is life in the Liberal Democrats shows that there may be some ruin left in the Conservative Party too. That's it. That's our, our cheery thing from the year is we're pinning all our hopes on those nine Lib Dems. <laughs> two, two new words for us, de-Liberal Democratification and re-Liberal Democratification. That's the good news for 2016. Right. 
we haven't finished talking, but we finished talking on talking politics. Um, we're going to carry on talking on the New Statesman podcast. So do doesn't really make sense to say switch channels, but switch channels. Um, and we'll, I hope, be speaking to you in a moment or two. Um, until then, my name is David Runciman, and this has been Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.